There's a, a list of principles that many of you, all of you probably are familiar with that are very, very important to us as Americans, and, and that is the, the, the Bill of Rights, right? They guarantee us certain rights against a state that would overstep, and one of those rights, of course, is, is the first one, which, which gives us the, the freedom to worship. The state can't tell us how to worship or who to worship. We have a freedom that is guaranteed us by that right that we still have the freedom to speak truth um, because our speech is protected. We have a free press, we have the right to vote, and all of these things are codified in this Bill of Rights which are sacred to Americans, right? They're wonderful for us, at the same time, somewhat controversial too. Like, how exactly or, or what constitutes like hate speech that would not be free to be spoken, and that, of course, is up for debate. And this last week, we saw another horrifying um, example of, of someone taking life, in which will bring up the Second Amendment again of, like, how far, what are the limitations, what is the scope of the right to bear arms? Again, very important for us, all of those things, but often debatable and sometimes controversial. Uh, Despite the controversial aspect of it, we're very, very appreciative for them. And I don't think that we would have a stable society if we didn't have those things. They're just kind of like, like foundation stones upon which we not only relate to our government, but there's a so- social dynamic to it, too, that enables us to relate to each, to each other, you know, to, to, to guarantee freedoms and promote justice and civility and so forth. Well, I want to suggest to you that you think of these Ten Commandments um, that God gave to the people of Israel in a sense, and that's not, not a perfect analogy, but in a sense as a bill of rights. The first three that we looked at in detail have to do with the vertical axis of how we're supposed to live in relationship to God. We might call those the divine rights. God is, it has a right to our exclusive worship. He has a right for us to honor his name And he has a right for his people to exercise the Sabbath as a sign of their covenant with him. That's what we looked at last week. That's the vertical aspect, divine rights. In the fourth commandment to the tenth, the last seven, we're dealing with human rights. That is person to person. Now what's distinctive about these ten commandments is that they emphasize a regard for the other person. We often internalize our own Bill of Rights as a very personal thing, like, well, this is my right as an American. The Ten Commandments spell out or emphasize um, a regard for the other person's rights. That is, the other guy, the other, the other individual, the other human, which you can understand why Jesus and Paul, as was just read, understood that underneath these commands is love. Like, this is, these, 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 these commands are basically expressions of human love to your neighbor. And now that's how we're going to proceed. That is what uh, unifies these commands. And we're going to look at five this week, and we're going to finish with the last two next week. So we're going to look at, just so you know how I'm, how I'm proceeding, we, I want us to look at the five. Um, we'll just call them the Bill of Rights of Love, Okay. Um, I want to look at them so we can understand them. And then secondly, I want to apply them in three ways. So here are the five. 
Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That's number four. Verse 17, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Those are the five. Now, before we look at them individually, let me just make two general observations. You notice this is dealing with people to people. Right? There's no commands about how to treat your dog or your donkey or how you're supposed to offer sacrifice. I mean, there are instructions in the five books of Moses that talk about some of those things. But all of these relate to people, how people are to, are to treat or not treat each other. So it, it's human to human in relationship with God. Which brings me to the second observation is I don't think we can rightly understand these if we don't take them in the context of Genesis 1 and how or who we were created to be. Like human beings, you and me, were created distinctive from all other creatures, right? Um, God has stamped his image on us, which makes each human being, each life, each human life sacred, Right? Even though that, that, that image has been distorted by the fall of mankind, it nevertheless is still there. And I believe that is underneath this, these commands about how humans are to treat humans because human life is sacred. And I'll come back to that in a moment. That's the second observation. So with that said, let's take these apart individually. They may seem straightforward, but I find that sometimes people lack clarity on certain things. So um, just so we're all on the same page. The first one has to do with your father and mother. We might call this the right of respect for parents. Honor your father and your mother. Now, what should strike you is that this comes before the command not to murder or commit adultery. Right? So right out of the vertical, how God calls us to live in relationship with him, the first thing out, out when it comes to human-to-human relationships is honor your father and mother before even murder. That communicates a sense of, like, of weight. Like, wait a second. This is important. It's not just like, honor your father and mother and move on. It's like, no, stop, pause. What, why is this put before murder? There are probably a number of reasons for that, but let me offer just a couple. One reason is that parents are the first structure of authority that we experience. Like God has placed father and mother in our lives as representations of who he is. The first place I learned about who the Lord was was from my parents, and we are called to submit and obey to them, obey them. They instruct us, they discipline us. That is the first structure of authority that God places over a person's life is their mom and their dad. And a failure to respect the authority that God has given to a mom and a dad will end up by and large, in a disrespect for a higher authority. The first place to learn the importance of authority is in the home with a mom and a dad. If you fail to respect a mom and a dad, the chances are you will fail to respect the authority of God himself. With that, it's almost a travesty of grace to dishonor the one who gave birth to you. You look at parenting, and um, I'm just going to ask you as parents to, like, don't you deserve just a little tiny bit of respect after what you put into your kids? Like, you, moms, you gave birth, that wasn't easy. You know, you, you changed, 
You fed, you burped, they threw up on you. Do you remember how much the diapers were, the formula was, and how, how much money you had to put out week after week after week, and then they went to school, and, and you hovered over their kindergarten class like helicopters. You bought them clothes, you bought them shoes, then new shoes because their feet grew to size 12. You discipline when they're bad, you weep over them when they make bad choices, and yeah, sometimes you want to toss them back, but you don't. All of this we do to our parents, or excuse me, as parents for our children, and they don't do anything necessarily to deserve it. It's, parenting is an act of grace. Having a mom and dad, any kind of a mom and dad, is a, is a, is a gift that none of us deserved. And to dishonor the one who gave you life is to dishonor the one who gave you parents as a gift from the Lord. Now, I understand that one of the... Um, one of the uh, objections that someone might raise, like, well, I had horrible parents. And actually, let me back up for a second and just say this. We tend to interpret or read this for kids, right? <laughs> Honor your father and your mother. As if this, this, this command was given for, for people in their terrible twos, right? Like a kid in his twos are going to understand what honor means, or maybe this verse, this command, is meant for junior hires who are like hopped up on hormones. Or maybe this is for teenagers who are incorrigible. Like, let's just press down this fourth commandment. That's why it's before murder, because it's that important. Obey your parents. But the interesting thing is that this, this document, this, these ten commandments were given to the adults. That is, it was intended not only to speak to younger people, it was intended to, to, to speak to adult children as well. Commentator Daniel Block writes this. He says, The terms father and mother should not be restricted to one's immediate biological parents. That is, he's arguing that it also should reflect a respect for the elderly in the community, let alone living parents. Nor is the principle valid only when one is young. This entire document is directed primarily toward adult males, which suggests many had parents who were deceased. So it's not just for young kids. This is for us. This is for me how we relate to those who raised us, those who came before us. Now the objection. It's like, wait a second, I, 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 I had horrible, horrible parents. I want you to notice there's, there's no conditionality in this. It's like, listen, if your parents took you to the zoo all the time and if they loved you and gave you good Christmas presents, well, then you honor them. There's no, there's no qualifications in this. There's a right to a respect that a parent has from a child, even if that parent wasn't the best. And nobody's perfect, we know that. If for no other reason, then God gave you the gift of life through that person, through those people. Um, I think I shared this some time ago, and if I did, forgive me, but so my dad was born into a context of a divorce. Um, and his mother, didn't want to have to deal with the burden of raising him, so she shipped him off at two years old to a relative. When asked, how did it feel? And I asked him just a couple years ago, he says, I felt like I wasn't wanted. Now, by Christian standards, or just even common sense standards, that's horrible parenting. But as I was a young boy, 
growing into a young man, I watched how my dad treated my grandmother. And he always, always, despite the fact that she basically shipped him off, always treated her with kindness and respect. Why? Because she was his mother. And that is the kind of respect that we are to show those who have come before us. And if we do, the sense is that it will go well for us in the future. One notable example of someone who did this wrong was King Rehoboam. Some of you know his story, but he is Solomon, the wisest son. Solomon dies. He leaves the throne to Rehoboam. Rehoboam decides, you know what? I think I'm better than my dad, and so I'm going to make decisions outside of counsel and wisdom, and as a result, everything goes bad and the, the kingdom is divided. It's just a failure to honor will not go well. But to honor, he says, will go well. It's interesting. To honor those who have gone before in the past will go well. And this is personal, personal uh, benefit. It's, it will go well with you, he says, in the future. And Paul, by the way, applies this directly to the church in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2. Honor your father and your mother, which means, practically speaking, you speak with respect to them and about them, even after they're dead. It means that you don't throw them under the bus by blaming them for your dysfunction or for your bad decisions. It practically means that if you have the means and the capacity to care for them, especially as they age and weaken, then that's part of what it means to honor a mother or father is you actually do care for them. Paul, I, I think he's thinking of this principle when he talks about um, this is in the book of Timothy, where he says, listen, if there's somebody who has the capacity and the means who doesn't take care of their relatives, he's worse than an unbeliever. This is part of the path of love, is to respect, to show respect to your parents. And I think that applies to all of us. I mean, it probably digs in a little bit. That's number one. Number two, the right to life you shall not murder. Now, I, I realize for most people this is straightforward, and maybe you understand this, but maybe not, because I've, I've met people who are confused. It's like, so you can't kill. And they think, well, then you can't be a law enforcement officer, you can't be a soldier in the battlefield, and that simply is not the case. Killing and murder are two different things. Killing is a broad term. Murder is a more specific term. Within the book of Deuteronomy, where these are found... There are offenses that are capital offenses. That is, they are punishable by death. It is a justified killing. The New Testament reaffirms the th same thing on the part of the state. Romans chapter 13 doesn't bear the sword in vain. There is a time, there is a justified killing, either with a badge, under certain circumstances, or out on the battlefield. So what's being prohibited here is not killing in general. Like I said, I realize this is touching on moral issues that are controversial in our time. I just like, listen, it's, it has nothing to do with politics. It has everything to do with simply what the Bible teaches. So murder is different. We're talking about premeditated, unjustifiable taking of life. Or 
to be more specific, the willful, unauthorized, or illicit taking of another person's life. That's what's being prohibited here. You can't just go take somebody out because you're mad at them. Why? Because on each human life is stamped the sacred stamp of the image of God. That's why we as Christians and and the Jewish people before us held such, such high regard for human life. Because we are unlike every other creature. We bear his mark. He owns us. He has the copyright to your body and soul. So we treat people as sacred. We, we treat their life as sacred. And let me just say, that extends to male, female, slave, or free, the immigrant, as well as a citizen, the elderly, as well as the unborn. If I understand Exodus 21, 22 through 23 correctly, then the unborn life is human life and therefore to be treated as sacred. So that's part of how we promote and live out love is we, we maintain that human life is sacred and to love another human's life is actually not only to love them, but to love God too. But that's number two, the right to life. Third, deals with marriage, the right to fidelity in marriage, and you shall not commit adultery. Why is this so important? You know, as I thought about these this morning between services, I was like, you know, this just really hits to the core of our society. It really does. Like that he includes the sacredness of the covenant of marriage within these ten is pretty astounding. Why is marriage so important that we should treat it as sacred? Well, many reasons, but two in particular, a theological and a social. On the theological side, God has given us marriage, like a covenant between man and woman till death do they part, um, as a little microcosm, as a, as a little living picture that we can see and touch and smell of God's love for his people. Like, that is the pattern. It's Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved his bride, the church. So it's, it, it communicates something about God's relationship with his people. And so where we... Uh, Break it apart, and and adultery is a frontal assault on the institution and the covenant of marriage. Most don't last as a result of it. Some do, because God is gracious, and God is merciful, and God could do a work. But it's a frontal assault on this portrait of God's love for his people and a people's exclusive worship of God. So to assault it is like throwing manure on a painting. Which means in the positive, as a community of believers in covenant with God, we should have like a, a, a sacred respect for our own marriages. It's a holy thing. Um, and guard ourselves against anything that would, that, would, that would seek to undo it, especially wandering eyes. And also the relationships 
of married people around us. It's like, no, I want to preserve, protect, encourage, because it's that important. That's one of the ways that we love one another. We love our neighbor, as we are in huge support for, for marriages. Right? These, the, the, the second reason is, a social reason, is that, you know, the, the marriage is basic building block of society. Right? Basic building block of, of society. Um, a, a marriage staying together, and I recognize not everybody is able to stay together in a marriage. There are probably some single folks here that are like, well, I wish I could have done that, but I can't. I'm in a different place. Well, luckily, God has given us a community of faith, and it does take a village to raise children. Um, it just needs to be the right village, a believing village. But the ideal way is that God created this man, woman, married to one another so that there would be a stable environment in which kids would grow up and they would have a sense of security. They would be able to see their personalities flourish and, and not be afraid every time they come home. That is, it affects the generations. And when you break that apart, when you break apart a covenant of marriage, you break apart people, or I should say, you impact people for generations. And you all see that play itself out probably in your own families. It's like you're seeing in nephews, nieces, and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that are like messed up because of a marital split and um, adultery is a, is a frontal assault on that. So that's a, the third. Right to fidelity in marriage. Four, the right to personal property as you shall not steal. You were supposed to respect the fact that God gave somebody something to own. It's theirs. It's not yours. God's passionate about personal property. You know that? I mean, he gave inheritance to his people. He gave them land. He gave them real estate. And he, di he divvied it out according to his own sovereign will. This is going to be yours. This is your real estate. And it's to be held in perpetuity from generation to generation. If you sell it, you'll eventually get it back because it's that important. And to take something that's not been given to you is, is a violation of our human dignity and, and our nobility. I'd be willing to say that almost everybody in here, if you're over the age of 20, have had something ripped off from you. I mean, we, we do live in Fairfield, you know. <laughs> I don't mean that as entirely negative. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. But um, I think I shared this, too, years and years ago. It's, it's like... Um, Within our time here, first in Sassoon and here Fairfield, uh, we've had people break into our home twice. Things stolen off our back porch a number of times and things stolen out of our cars to, I think, add up to about nine times. And I'll tell you, the violation and the rage and the anger that I feel makes me want to violate one of those principles. And heaven forbid I come in while somebody's in my house trying to steal something. I, I don't know what I would have done. I hoped I would have obeyed and called the cops. <laughs> Let them deal with it. But you get it, it's a violation. It's a very real violation of someone's humanity to break in and steal. And here's the thing, as, as, as Christians who have been liberated from greed, at least in our hearts, deep down, by the gospel of Jesus Christ who gave us everything, Paul would encourage us that we're supposed to be people who are exact opposite of this. Let the thief no longer steal. He's talking about the thief who's come to Christ and had his, his life and heart revolutionized. 
to do something different than he used to do. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And instead of taking, to love people means in reverse of this command, we're generous with people. We work hard not just to elevate our own standard of living, but elevate our standard of giving and generosity. Now that's principle number four. Just right to personal property. And fifth is the right to truth and justice. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, this kind of envisions a court of law where a person is being judged based upon witnesses as to whether he's guilty or innocent. It's like, don't bear false witness. Don't say false things because a justice hangs in the balance. It's precisely what happened with Jesus at his trial. They brought in false witnesses to accuse him of doing things he didn't do or, or telling half-truths. It was an abortion of justice. It's like, but I, and I, I, let me just say, I think Jesus would have us uh, apply this to ordinary language as well, correct? It's like he said, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to swear an oath to tell the truth. Just speak the truth. That means, this probably hits all of us too. That means we don't spin facts, leaving out some and adding others to reshape the truth into a half-truth, which is not the truth. That we don't try to create narratives that are only partly true. Because at the end of the day, it's an untruth, it's a lie, and it ends in injustice. Injustice. Rather, we are to be people who do our absolute best to speak the truth. People who are passionate about justice. Not just for ourselves, but others as well. So here you have these, these five things. At the core of all of them really is love. But the failure to keep them also comes from the same place. It comes from that same fallen sense of pride that's willing to say, I'm going to take this at others' expense. It's the same impulse that sent Adam and Eve reaching out for what was not properly theirs, taking it, at the expense of the generations to follow. It's the same impulse. The desire to satisfy the self at the expense of others. It's under all of these. So, I hope we're on the same page of understanding. How do we apply these? I've given you a little bit along the way. Three ways. First, these things, these principles of love should break us. That is, it should humble us. It should drop us to our knees. Because we look at these, and if you're being introspective at all, you realize that you have failed to keep them. Unless you're a perfect teenager, and you never disrespected your parents, then you failed at number one. I'll just be bold and blunt. 
a man or a woman sitting here this morning who has dabbled in pornography this week. You have violated your covenant of marriage. Jesus went farther than just to say, listen, it's only the act, right? He says, listen, you can commit the act of murder and the act of adultery, but if you murder in your heart, that is you hate somebody, or you commit adultery in your heart, that is you lust after somebody who's not your husband or wife, well, then you are guilty as charged. Which means there's probably, again, a mirror in front of us going, wow, no, I, I didn't keep that either. It should break us. As James chapter 1, we look into the mirror and realize, man, I, am, I can't live up to the standard. And this morning, I, I'm, this is kind of like a mirror, and some of you might be feeling uncomfortable, or maybe you've told a half-truth to your husband, and you're sitting here feeling guilty right now. Because we are looking into a mirror of God's perfect righteousness of what it means to love people, love your wife, love your parents, love human life. It should break us. Number two, it should drive us. Not to despair, but to Jesus. We are broken by these commands because we fail to live up to them perfectly, which tells us that we're sinful. But then it's to drive us, not to despair or self-loathe, but to drive us back to Jesus and back to the cross. You know, Jesus lived each and every one of these fully and perfectly. Like, in every thought, action, deed, attitude, every action, he honored his heavenly Father. There was never a time where he did not honor him. Even his earthly mother, Mary, while he's hanging on a bloody cross in severe pain, he takes the time to make sure that his disciple, John, is going to take care of his mom. He honors her, even while he's dying. That he never committed murder in his heart, or certainly not in his, his action, but became the willing target of murder to atone for our sins so that we might have life, the opposite of murder. That he is the truest of all husbands who gave his life on behalf of his bride, the church. Never faltered in love. That he never took from anybody, never stole. You see, exact opposite. Always giving, always healing. Willing to give forgiveness, willing to give out his own life on the cross willing to give us life through his resurrection, willing to give us a promise of a brand new creation, the likes of which we can't even imagine, the best of which to give us God himself. He is the complete opposite of this. He is generosity on speed. And last but not least, he, is, he never bent the truth. He never spun a story. He not only spoke the truth, he was the truth. And his passion was justice, justice at the expense of his own life. He perfectly fulfilled it. We run to him because there's only one person who can grant us perfection, and it's not us. It's him. And we're told that when, when we trust in him, and this is the truth we have to come back to over and over again, when we trust in him, we're reminded that his righteousness is ours, not ours. We will never merit heaven on the basis of what we do he merited it for us by keeping these perfectly. So while it should break us, it should drive us 
to Jesus, and then in response to the gospel, it should lead us. It should lead us to lead different kinds of lives. That is, lead us to love others in these ways. You know, we we love to preach love in general and grace, and you can never preach grace or love too much. But what we mustn't do is leave out the moral obligation we have then to respond to it. To actually, okay, God, you loved me. Now I'm going to love you and love others in return out of what you have done. May not ever do it perfectly, but I'm going to give my life to loving people. And these are tangible ways that we're supposed to love people. This is a response, right? Verse 6 of Deuteronomy says, the Lord says, I'm the one who brought you out of slavery. That is, I'm the one who saved you, and now this is how you live in relationship with me. The same holds true today, is if we're living in proper relationship with God through the cross of Jesus Christ, we're going to want to learn what it means to love in these ways. And, And think how important it is. As you look at all five of these things, and everything is disintegrating culturally around us. Do people really care about authority anymore or give, you know, the respect to those who have come before? Is there a sacredness to human life, all life? Um, is, 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 is marriage still considered an institution that's sacred? I don't think so. Not, not by and large. Do people uh, respect each other's property? Sometimes. Are people passionate about truth and justice? Like real truth and justice, not a spin of truth and justice? No, I don't think so. We are called by God to be different in a deteriorating culture, to be those kinds of people that are the preserving influences of culture as we, as we, as we practice what it means to actually love, to be salt and to be light. So I want to encourage you, church, these are, these, are, these are tangible ways by which, by the grace of God, we can walk in the Spirit and love people around us and give honor and glory to, to the Lord and allow them to see something different than is out there. This is the, this is the heartbeat of, of what it means to love. And so I, I pray that maybe one of these things struck you or maybe all of them, but that you would think about how it is that you would want to respond this morning to um, these instructions given to us uh, by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I pray for your church this morning. We thank you for the wisdom of your words. We thank you for the truthfulness of your words, for the infallible nature of your words. And we ask that you, by your spirit, would help us to live differently in a culture that devalues many of these things, that we might honor you, that they might see something different in us that doesn't rule the rest of the world. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins when we failed. Thank you for the cross, and thank you for the righteousness of Jesus. Amen.